there's a lot to see and do in Italy, so much, in fact, that it can be exhausting. So to help you relax on your vacation, consider staying at a farmhouse B&B where you can slow down and enjoy the rural backbone of Italy. It literally gets people out into the countryside. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Turns out, for some city folks, staying at an agriturismo can be a revelation. We have very often people who've never seen an egg coming from a chicken. And they're like surprised. And they pick the tomato and they're like in heaven and makes me laugh to tears, but I can't show that. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, two friends from Italy explain all about Italian guest houses in the countryside. And author Bill McKean explains how Key West became an artist's paradise in the 1970s. But for some, it had its price. Well, you know, the thing about paradise is that it can be dangerous. And we'll start the hour ahead with listener feedback from recent shows. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In the 1970s, Key West in Florida became a haven for writers, artists, and eccentrics in what seemed like an endless cocktail party. We'll learn about the mystique that still lingers in the streets of Key West today on Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll hear about options for staying at a farmhouse B&B in Italy. First, let's see what listeners have to say about things they've heard on the show in recent months. By the way, you can share your thoughts and travel tales in the radio feedback corner of our website at ricksteves.com. You can email us directly at radio at ricksteves.com, and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. We recently interviewed Paul Theroux about traveling through Africa in his book Dark Star Safari, and that inspired Cindy in Seattle to send us an email. And she writes, I listen to your radio show with your guest, Mr. Theroux, and it amazes me that it's such a big deal when someone like your guest travels without a particular plan, just ad-libbing along day after day, asking locals where to stay, where to eat, and so on. If this is so special, then you should have me on your show. I'm a 63-year-old female who's never been out of the United States until 15 years ago. Since then, I've traveled to countries all over the world, including Thailand, China, India, Russia, Turkey, Honduras, Guatemala, Poland, Estonia, Serbia, Ukraine, Moldova, Bulgaria, Israel, Mongolia, and more. I never took a guidebook, never had a bit of language, never made one plan or had any idea where I was going. The plan, such as it was, was to just toss myself into the thick of it and see if I could meet my needs. My only priority was not to get a bullet in the head or land in jail. You want to learn about the culture? Well, when you have to find everything out and meet all your needs only through gestures and charades, you sure learn about the culture. You learn how creative, patient, humorous, intelligent, and helpful people are all over this world. I've baked bread, herded goats, tended crops, helped out in factories, you name it. And the people, of course, are mainly just delightful. Also not to be sniffed at is how you find out just how creative and resourceful you can be in tough situations. Well, that's quite an inspiration. That 63-year-old Cindy from Seattle. A while back, we did a show interviewing two Irish tour guides about how Americans can trace their Irish ancestry. And Kate from Katy, Texas, emails us pointing out something we overlooked. She says, Rick, your guest spoke about places to go in Washington, D.C. and said that if somebody wanted to, they could go to the National Archives and look up their ancestors on the 1890 census. Well, the 1890 census burned up in a fire. So while you could go and look up your ancestors in an 1880 or in a 1900 census, it's unlikely you'll ever find them in 1890. And uh, Miguel from Carpinteria is on the line in California. Miguel, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. You're welcome. I emailed you uh, regarding the program you aired on August 27. Uh, I think you interviewed, what's his name, Rolf, Rolf Potts? Rolf Potts, that's right. We were talking about uh, Latin America. Yes, and at what point you um, referred to the less developed beaches of uh, Nicaragua and El Salvador by saying they were waiting for development. And that's what motivated my uh, writing to you, because I think that that choice of words contributes to a mindset that we should change. We are in a crowded planet that has been behaving like a pest, and we're destroying a lot of the natural environment. There's some pristine beaches then in El Salvador and Nicaragua that would be nice if they were not developed. Not only that, if they are developed... They are developed staying as natural as possible and restoring the ecosystems as much as possible because we have um, 
damaged ecosystems all over the world. We need to bring them back. You know, that's a very good point, Miguel. And I was just down in El Salvador, and I was struck by how their government has pretty much stripped away any restrictions on development, and it's, it's, it's pretty, ama- pretty appalling, frankly, what's happening to their environment. Is there any place in Central America, in your uh, estimate, that's taking good care of its environment? I wouldn't know, but I come from Peru, South America, and we destroyed the anchovy fisheries leading up to the 70s, I think, was the catastrophe. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I saw that happen over yep. a couple of decades. And when it's destroyed, it's hard to, it's hard to roll back the, the time and get it back. I think that's a very good point. I was just in that mindset of uh, assuming that it would be developed, and uh, while it has potential to be developed, let's hope they take good care of their environment in uh, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and, and all over Latin America. Let me quote uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, an economist and director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. The defining challenge of the 21st century will be to face the reality that humanity shares a common fate on a crowded planet. I love the work of Jeffrey Sachs. Thank you very much, Miguel. You're welcome, Rick. I know. Bye. On another recent show, a caller called in and said they wanted to see everything at the Louvre, and I told him, don't bother. A lot of stuff in there isn't worth seeing. <laughs> and Meg in Fort Wayne, Indiana, wrote in with a bit of a correction. Shame on you, Rick, Meg writes, for your response to the man who wanted to spend six months in the Louvre. Some of us are museum nuts, and I agree with him. On my second trip to Paris, I read up on the Louvre beforehand, made a plan, and spent one or two hours every morning exploring a different section. I'll go back and do some more. Your caller needs to be warned, though, that the signage is very small. I set off alarms more than once by leaning in too close while trying to read the tiny labels on the art in the Great Louvre Museum. We're checking email and phoning listeners who've sent us comments on things they've heard recently on Travel with Rick Steves. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com or post to our online message board in the radio section of our website. Jennifer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes, I listened to your recent show about budget eating tricks and heard a woman complain about getting blood sausage at a high-end hotel in Scotland at the Caledonian. The first time I tried blood sausage, I was in a B&B, and our host called it black pudding. She wouldn't tell us what it was made of until we tried it, so naturally we were suspicious. But we loved it. It has a lot of great spices in it and actually has more flavor than most foods you find in Britain. Now, every time we go to Scotland or England, we have blood sausage, especially at high-end hotels, because they really do this delicacy right. So the travel tip here, don't turn your nose up at something, even if it has a pretty gross name, until you've tried it. It's good advice from Jennifer in Pittsburgh. And we got a lot of feedback from a recent interview we did with Don George and his book, A Movable Feast. Uh, Don and I were describing being served a a fish while it was still alive on the remote island in the Sea of Japan. Uh, Linda in Bremerton is calling with a response to that interview. Linda, thanks for your call. What was your response to us talking about that fish there in Japan? Oh, I thought it was just awful. I think that we are all responsible as higher-level thinkers to change our behavior and be more humane and more compassionate on a global perspective, not just locally. We just cannot condone cruel cultural practices for silence gives consent. You know, not only was that fish harmed, so were we. We diminish our humanity when we blunt our natural, inherent compassion and mercy. And that spills over to our treatment of others. What I regret about that interview is taking it lightly and laughing. I think from well, you know, a t- I think that was nervous laughter. Nervous. Because people once believed that, um, you know, fish were trying to get away as, as a reflex response. But researchers from Queen's University in Belfast, they proved that fish do feel pain. They discover neuron messages that are transmitted to part of the brain where pain signals are also processed by birds and mammals. And they looked at Atlantic salmon, carp, cod, goldfish. If you Google fish feel pain, you'll see all the research data. And it's true, you know. For the longest time, people didn't believe that human babies felt pain. And now we know differently. You know, as recently as the mid-'80s, people thought that babies did not feel, infants did not feel pain. But now, you know, we know better. And when we know better, we do better. So, Linda, that is interesting. When we travel, we encounter activities and cultures that that just seem barbaric from another point of view. And maybe there are some fundamental, universal sort of points of decency that we should keep in mind when we report on this and and bring these uh, interesting, I mean, we got to admit it's interesting, 
but uh, to not take it lightly and to learn from it and be thoughtful and, and try to inspire people to uh, have a higher-minded approach to this sort of thing. Right. I think it's important to respect culture, but there are ways to uh, diplomatically and politely uh, lead those people to question what they're doing. And if you plant a seed of doubt in, in one or two people's minds, you start the progress going. I mean, you just have to you know, promote compassion and, and a, a more humane mm. world. It's hard to judge their culture, but we certainly can encourage them to think a little more about what they're doing, I guess. Right. There are ethical and moral consequences to our food choices. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to recommend A Conscious Cook by Tal Roman. I mean, he talks about, you know, how our food choices um, affect the, the impact they have. It's, it's, very, very, it's a very good book, mm-hmm. great menus. The Conscious Cook by Tal, T-A-L-R-O-N-N-E-N. It won a lot of awards. Thank you very much, Linda. You're welcome. Thanks for taking my call. And in response to that same interview with Don George about eating fish, Monica in Seattle emailed us, and she writes, Thanks for having me on the show with Don George. What an incredible writer. Don and I seem to have a lot in common, a love of food, love for a community of food, as well as both having spouses from Japan. While traveling in South Korea, I was surprised that we were able to try more of the moving, movable feast that Don described in Japan, and at a very reasonable cost. Happy travels. Arigato. So Monica has a different take on the point Linda brought up. Uh, If you eat live fish, fish feel the pain. Is that fun? Is that exciting? Or is that immoral? These are things we need to think about as we travel. Mary in Redmond, Washington, also wrote us and commented on a show we did recently about Greece. Mary writes, I heard you talking to a Greek tour guide, and you said that the Greco-Turkish War in 1919 to 1922 was relatively bloodless, which was not the case. My father was part of that war. His home was burned out. He was separated from his family while fleeing, and he rowed to safety in a boat with another family, escaping on an Italian ship. This war was not bloodless. It was extremely bloody. Especially, I suppose, Mary, if your father and your relatives and loved ones were involved in it. Thank you for that feedback. And recently we had an interview with a guide and we were talking about how hard it is to know if local guides really are giving you accurate information. Kate in Edmonton, Alberta emails us and she wrote, I was listening to one of your radio shows in which you related a story about asking a tour guide in Greece, somewhat skeptically, if the columns on Greek temples really followed a strict canon of proportions. I asked my art history professor and he confirmed it. A Doric column is indeed eight times as tall as its base. Ionic columns are ten times as tall as their bases, and Corinthian columns are eleven times as tall as that base. Also, he said, Doric columns are used in temples for male gods or masculine goddesses like Athena. The Ionic columns were used in temples of goddesses, and the Corinthian columns were not used in many Greek temples at all because they were considered too garish. The Corinthian columns were used more by the Romans. Thanks, Kate in Edmonton. And now we know more what those columns are all about. We're staying at farmhouses in Italy and getting to know Key West. Just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at After seeing the great cities of Italy, you might want to take a break in a quieter setting. The agriturismo farmhouse bed and breakfasts that are scattered all around the country are one of my favorite ways to get immersed in the beautiful Italian countryside. Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Cecilia Botai, who operates guest rentals on her family vineyard estate near Orvieto, and Jamie Blair Gould, who organizes gourmet tours through rural Italy. 
Cecilia and Jamie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here, Rick. Good to be here. Cecilia, tell us about your estate in Umbria, near Orvieto. My estate, it is a family-owned estate since six generations, 150 years. What we did decide to do some years ago is to renovate some former farmhouses and turn them into places uh, where people could stay and enjoy the holiday by doing day trips or just staying in the countryside. So is this an agriturismo? Well, this is basically the idea. How the agriturismo started, why it started, it's because in the 50s and 60s, people started to abandon the farms because they wanted to have a better lifestyle. Remember that when I was a child, all those farmhouses didn't have running water. Nice lifestyle, but very rural. So they, they tried to get something better, more modern, more easy to live in, and they wanted also other kind of jobs. So those, those farmhouses were abandoned, and uh, they started to, like, get ruined and collapse. So the, the, the farmers decided, what do we do with them? And the government decided there must be a way to help people keep them, so renovate them. this is them. a government program to help revitalize the farms that were being abandoned. Yeah, I would say more than the, the government, the Ministry of Agriculture, together with the agriculture people, decided to find a way. That's called agriturismo, the whole program. Uh, uh, the, the idea, more okay. than the program. Jamie, when you think of agriturismo, is this a way to help? In the United States, you know, the small farms have, have gone out of business because of just the new dynamic and the business of farming. You have to be big. My sense is small farms need some help. And Absolutely. And, and, I mean, the whole can... thing was set up, as Cecilia said, to, uh, to help the farmer to earn a little bit of extra to keep these farms going. Um, my understanding of it is that uh, every region has a percentage which they have to have as actual agriculture because they give them tax benefits as well. So to get the tax benefits of a, quote, agriturismo, you have to still be a working farm. Absolutely. So the idea is not to, not to let people be countryside hoteliers, but well, it, to subsidize the traditional farming Well, of course, because what, what would happen, particularly in Italy, um, mm. is that uh, every hotel would throw some lettuce in the gardens and call themselves an agriturismo. So uh, this is a way, I believe, every region... Um, has a fixed percentage. But, uh, of course, being Italy as well, this is uh, subject to... Um, <laughs> Discretion. Yes. Cecilia, when you're talking about an agriturismo, tell me, uh, apart from your estate, have you traveled and stayed in an agriturismo, and what's the experience like? Well, I have. I liked it very much. Each agriturismo is a different experience because since it was done to help the farms, as Jamie said, we have to prove that we devote more time to agricultural issues than to the agriturismo. That's the main thing. But we have different experiences, like you might have a villa with frescoes or a castle that is part of a farm or an estate that becomes an agriturismo. So in this case, it's a very deluxe experience. Or you might have the more rural house that used to be the house of the farmers. And frankly speaking, this is the experience I like the best, even if I live in the countryside, because it's more authentic, I would say, where you stay with the people for dinner. They offer you normally half board. So you eat what they partly produce. So the, the chicken you have is the real chicken that was like running the day before. Blah, 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 blah. I'll never forget going to a beautiful uh, agriturismo near Orvieto, Signora Gori. And she took me out under her farm and you could hear the slaughter of, of her cattle. And she said, that's our little Beirut up there. And she'd pick up her favorite pig and then we'd walk over here. And, and then that night on the dinner table, it was all farm produce right there. Everything, the cheese, the meat, the bread, the wine, the oil. Jamie, you, I know you love food. This is the point I think Cecilia's trying to make as well is there, there are several categories of this. And so any of your uh, listeners, if they want to go to Italy and experience this, I think they have to decide exactly what level they, they want to have. Meaning the fancy deluxe place with a swimming pool. Yes, but also not just the how fancy it is. It's also whether you want a true farm experience where you can actually work on the farm in some of these. Oh, can you or, actually work on the farm? On some of these you can, yes. You can actually help down there, which I think is lovely for families too. Yeah. Now, you've got a family. Have you done this with your family? I have done it with my family, Tell yes. us about that. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a marvellous thing. I mean, you can stay in, um, you know, a, usually it's outbuildings perhaps of mm -hmm. uh, one of these, and they've been specially done up, and the four of us, two bedrooms. I have two daughters uh, and my wife, and you can uh, go down and help on the farm and, you know, feed the animals. So you can go to Florence and have some famous Chianin. What's the beef called? The famous oh, beef? the Chianina. Chianina uh, beef. Or you can go out to a farm and, and actually watch them raise their cows. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you can You can do all of those. And as you said, getting back to the food, I mean, some of these are very, very authentic, and it's all the vegetables from the garden, 
all home produce, the animals that have been slaughtered uh, for you at the table. It's a great experience, I think, particularly for families, because uh, there are certain other farms where you can actually um, assist, if you like. You can go on them. They're working farms, and the children can feed the chickens and various things like that as well, which is, uh, you know, kind of nice hands-on That's experience. That's a great hands-on for, for a, a city kid, you know? Ah, absolutely. When you choose your agriturismo, you have that option in mind. One can be suitable for, you know, adults without kids, where you're just going to be more elegant. The others can be this rustic hands-on farm experience for the whole family. I know a lot of agriturismos have programs where you can go cooking, you can go truffle hunting, you can go into the town and check out the gallery or look at the Etruscan tomb and, and so on. Quite impressive. Yeah, and I think you have to be careful in thinking that it just doesn't divide between rustic and fancy because some of the fancier ones still allow this uh, more hands-on experience and uh, some of the rustic ones don't. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about agriturismos. You can find farmhouse B&Bs and so on all around, but Italy is really, that is a forte. If you want to enjoy the rural experience in Italy, your keyword, agriturismo. How would you say in general the prices are for agriturismos? I think they're pretty good, really, although over the years, um, since the agriturismo system has become popular... Sort of trendy, uh, the prices Exactly. So you'll probably pay what you pay for a, a reasonable hotel in a city to stay in a nice farm? Well, it depends. Probably it's a little bit less because the cities are more expensive right. regularly. Yeah. But it's not uh, a cheap way to go. It's just a good well, alternative. could be cheaper than a hotel. Maybe you get a... Rather than getting just a room somewhere, you get a portion of a renovated farmhouse. This is what you get at my winery. So you pay the price of a room, but you get the room, you get the living room, you get the kitchen where you can help yourself. And then you get the experience of picking your vegetables. If it's the good season, go see the real eggs. I mean, we have very often people who've never seen an egg coming from a chicken and they're like surprised and they've never seen a tomato grown in a farm. So there you go. they pick the tomato and they're like in heaven and makes me laugh to tears, but I can't show that because And then it's they can take it in me. and cut it up and eat it. And I think one of the big advantages is it literally gets people out into the countryside because when you're trying to organize your trip to Italy, you see all these wonderful cities and they are wonderful, small, large ones, and you drive through the countryside. But if you don't have a focal point, you're not necessarily going to get into the countryside. So booking yourself into one of these actually gets you in. Uh, gets your fingers dirty in the, in the countryside. Yes, that's correct. And when you think about appreciating cuisine, you know, France has its great cuisine, but it's a little fancier with all the preparation and sauces, whereas Italy, it's so into the ingredients. And if you want farm fresh ingredients, you're going to eat very well on an agriturismo. Absolutely. I think some of the best meals I've had in Italy have been on agriturismo. Because it's literally family cooking. Right there. I'm speaking with Jamie Blair Gould and Cecilia Botai. We're talking about agriturismos. There's farmhouse B&Bs all over the world, but Italy really has a, a wonderful organization here. And if you want to connect with the rural lifestyle in Italy, as a traveler, that's a very good word to know. Agriturismo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Elise is on the line in Carlsbad, California. Elise, thanks for your call. Oh, yes. I just wanted to tell you that we spent about a month in Italy. We decided to uh, just go strictly to agriturismos, and uh, it was quite an interesting experience. We got lost a lot, as you always do in Italy, but because most of these places are, you know, out in the country, we got lost even more, but that's half the fun of it. But when we got there, uh, they were always very kind people. The food was always good, and uh, we really enjoyed it. Did you find the price was reasonable? Yes, the price was reasonable. And how, how on a farm was it? Was it a, a working farm as far as your experience? Well, not a big farm, but there was always animals of some sort, you know, maybe some chickens or cow or, you know, sheep. Did you get a chance to actually, uh, you know, get to know the people a little bit, or did you feel like you were just in a motel in the middle of nowhere? Oh, no, no. We got to know the people and talk to them about, you know, where they lived and their place. It was quite interesting. Sounds good. How many different agriturismos did you visit? Well, in a month, we'd go to a different one every uh, two to three days. Whoa, so you went to 10 or 12 different agriturismos, and it sounds right. like you had a good experience. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. What part of Italy was this? All over, mostly in the northern, uh, you know, from above Rome. Yeah, and you were driving, I suppose. Yes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd need to be driving, I think, to do the agriturismos. Oh, oh you'd have to. About. I don't yeah. know how you'd do it on the train or anything. Elise from Carlsbad, California, thanks a lot for your call. Okay, thank you. And Marlene's on the phone from Sardinia, Ohio. Marlene, Hello. thanks for your call. 
I'm really thrilled to talk to you, Rick, because we, we love the agritourismus. We did that on our first trip in 2005 and leased a car, and the agriturismos were wonderful. We went to one that was, it was funny because when we finally, we saw a sign and we turned, we finally ended up kind of on a dirt road, and we got to this place, and the guy said to us, how did you find us? <laughs> and I said, well, we saw a sign and we thought we'd try. Oh, so and you didn't, you just dropped in? We just dropped in. That's how we dropped in every agriturismo we got. Really? We got, so you yes. would drive around and you'd see a sign posted, and you'd just say, hi, we'll stay here. Yes, we, so we drove up, and he says, well, we're kind of not ready yet, but you know what? We've got rooms up here if you want. So they were delightful. We loved meeting these young fellows. They were the son and a cousin of this one couple who decided to let them run the agritourismo. It wasn't up and running yet too much, but we had a wonderful stay there. Then we stayed at another place that was, um, we, we didn't have any reservations. We were gone three and a half weeks and had no reservations. And you, and you went from agriturismo to agriturismo? We didn't do everything agriturismo no, because we couldn't it. find them. And that, huh. was, that was one of the reasons I had questioned was, was there a, a map or a book of, of them? I don't know <laughs> of a map or a book that does just agriturismos. Yeah. When we found them, they were delightful. And another place we stayed right outside of Siena. So we were not so much in the countryside, but they did have some vineyards there. And I have to tell you a funny story. There is an elderly man, a grandfather-type man there, and he came out. And my husband, none of us really talked Italian. We used our hands a lot and, you know, tried to, you know how you communicate. You just do. Sure. And he was lovely. And all of a sudden, he and my husband and him are carrying on a whole conversation. We have no idea what they're talking about. I'm not sure they did either, but we all so enjoyed it. And then he comes out with a big bottle of his own wine. And we sat around and talked. It was just Wonderful. I just, the whole agriturismo experience was wonderful. I think you encapsulated it right there. Just the fun of meeting people that don't have to deal with tourists in a big city all the time, but there's just salt-of-the-earth people that rent out an extra room to help make ends meet, and you get to be the beneficiary of that. Yeah. Boy, I want to I kind of stress what Cecilia and Jamie have been talking about. The agriturismos are a huge range of style and uh, mm-hmm. what they're offering and so on. And I know from my own research over there, it, it really behooves you to, if you want to get the agriturismo that, that fits the bill for you, to do a little snooping around on the Internet or talk to other people or whatever because they can be a good experience or they can just be a magical experience depending on, on uh, how you do your research. I did want to ask you, we're thinking about a trip to Sicily. So we've not been south of Rome. We've been all north but not south. And I didn't know if there was as many down there in the southern part of Italy and Sicily. You know, know, I've stayed in one of the most beautiful agriturismos I've ever been in, in Sicily, in the heart of Sicily, and I know there are plenty of agriturismos in Sicily. You just wouldn't want to be wandering around aimlessly looking for them. You'd want to do a little research in advance. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Marlene, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Good luck in your future travels. Thanks a lot. Cecilia, you're a a hardworking Italian with your own estate. What's it like for you to meet fellow countrymen via the agriturismo system? It is always a nice experience, and I know that because I see how much people do appreciate when I stay with them, we stay with them. First of all, we have the chance to communicate well with them because we speak more languages, but this is not the main thing because, you know, Italians do speak with hands, basically, and we're always happy to welcome people even if we don't speak their same language. But it is important that they get to understand what is the lifestyle in the countryside, in that countryside. You know, I'm used to calling Italy the United States of Italy because we are very different. And I was born in Tuscany from a half Tuscany and half Roman family. I live in Umbria. My in-laws are from Calabria. So I know how different all that is. And And when you travel in the agriturismos, you get a good dose of that. Absolutely. Jamie, you've uh, sort of adopted Italy. You've lived in Italy for how long now? Uh, For uh, nine years now. Nine years. Cecilia was talking about the United States of Italy. I I love this notion that uh, Italy is the land of a thousand bell towers or campanile, where everybody just loves the sound of their bell tower. There's so much regional pride. Oh, absolutely. As you travel around Italy, you definitely see regional differences. Uh, Differences in the mentality, differences in the food differences in uh, dialects and uh, everything else. It's a beautiful thing to embrace, and you get close to that by staying with people down on the farm. Yeah, I think so. Um, Specifically on the farms, you see the differences perhaps more because you're actually mixing with the the country people. Cecilia Botai, Jamie Bergold, thanks so much for sharing with us about the agriturismos in Italy. Cecilia, when uh, an American traveler is going to an agriturismo, 
What's a good phrase that they should be sure to know how to say with their hosts? Well, probably the host will tell them when they sit at the table and get a nice meal served, it's buon appetito. That means enjoy your meal in the Italian way. Buon appetito. And Jamie, what, what phrase should I remember when I go to a negro Oh, I think kill that rooster. <laughs> kill that rooster. How do you say that? Ammazza quel gallo, per favore. Oh, baby. Ammazza del gallo, po' parore. I want to get some good sleep. Mille grazie. Ciao and buon viaggio. Buon viaggio. Buon viaggio. Mille grazie. Grazie. Bicycle traveler Willie Weir often takes a microphone on his adventures and comes back with some lasting souvenirs, including one idea for a birthday gift that's truly one of a kind. Want to send an unforgettable gift that will also be a lasting travel memory? Make a birthday recording. It's cheap, well, and it's fun. Choose someone you love, that's the motivation, and make sure you travel with some sort of audio recording device. Now, while you're traveling about your own country or through some exotic land, ask people you meet along the way to sing or say or send some sort of birthday greeting. You see, most people get nervous when you put a microphone in front of their face. But if you give them a job, a purpose, they, they often shine. When I cycled across Canada, I decided to make a birthday tape. Yes, that's how long ago it was. For my sister-in-law, Julie, every opportunity I had, I asked folks to sing, tell a story, or just say hello. The gift was a hit, and it also ended up being an amazing way to capture some of the voices of people I'd met along the way. Your audio birthday greeting will undoubtedly include some traditional songs. Some non-traditional tunes. West Rock, West Rock, oh, what happy day. Some amazing accents. Hi, Judy. We're out here from South Africa and having a wonderful time. How are you doing? I'm Floyd Taylor from Greenville, South Carolina. Possibly a poem. Frozen Dream by Shel Silverstein. Not all birthday greetings will be from humans. Flip, speak. <laughs> ah, happy birthday, he said. Instruments are always a good way to add some local flavor. Hi, Julie. Happy birthday. And some you'll just play over and over. Happy birthday to you. But however your birthday tape turns out, it will be a valued gift that says you were thinking about the recipient throughout your travels. And for you, it will remain a treasured memory of the people that you met along the way. And goodbye. Have a good birthday. And for dessert, cake and ice cream too. You'll find more Travels with Willie online at willyweird.com. Our next stop takes us to Key West on Travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> Key West. It's a small town on a small island, literally at the end of the road. It's famous as an artistic haven in paradise at the very end and also at the beginning of America's Route 1. Key West was a hot spot for some of the wildest and most talented writers and artists of the 1970s. They went there... To be literary he-men or to reinvent themselves or just to disappear. William McKean's written a book called Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. It lets us get a sense of what they call the unending cocktail party that took place there just a generation ago. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Key West has is, is really been a magnet for literary types. You compare it to Paris of the 1920s. You know, it, it kind of was. Hemingway, of course, is the one that sort of put it on the literary map and lived there for a decade or so, but it was also Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens and uh, Tennessee Williams moved there in the 40s. But there was a real great collection of talent that was there in the in the 1970s, uh, including Thomas McGuane and then Jim Harrison, eventually Jimmy Buffett, uh, you know, Philip Caputo, Shel Silverstein, you name it, they're there. But I, I focused on the McGuane, Harrison, uh, Buffett group in my book. And why did you focus on them? Because they had a really good story to tell. I th I think that uh, Tom McGuane was sort of a rock star of writers back in the beginning of the 70s. You didn't have to read books to know who he was. He was this tall, lanky, long-haired, crazy, hippie writer that everyone, all the critics were calling the new Hemingway. And so there he was living in Key West, sort of baiting that, that challenge. At the time, I'm sure it, was, it opened a lot of doors to be the new Hemingway. I think it became kind of an irritating thing for him. But, you know, there he was, kind of on Papa's turf, there to, to face off and, and sort of prove his literary chops. And, of course, he went on beyond 
being the new Hemingway and just became Tom McGuane, which is, in my view, at least a great American institution in, in literature. But also, he struggled a lot in the 70s, and he had a uh, a reputation as this uh, crazed alcoholic drug abuser nicknamed Captain Berserko, and he came out of it. And I saw this book as, as being a book with a happy ending, because here's a guy that, you know, redeemed himself through his talent and through his will, and there was a period there in the, in the mid-70s where I think he had three wives in three years. Well, now he's been married to the same woman for 35-plus years, hasn't had a drink, a drug, or anything in 35 years. So I, I responded to that part of the story, to his redemption. You know, reading your book, it, it occurred to me a lot of these people went down there and, and they kind of found what they needed, and then they end up going to Montana or something like that and living happily ever after. Well, you know, the thing about paradise is that it can be dangerous. And uh, the whole culture there in Key West seemed to circulate, at least in that era, around drug and alcohol abuse. And finally, there was just too much fun, and they they had to escape. In fact, uh, all of my main characters sort of have this wistful memory of Key West, and they loved it, and it was an important part of their life. McGuane told me, I, I wouldn't want that part of my life removed because so much came from it. But it was uh, it was kind of a difficult time, I think, for a lot of them. But obviously, Jimmy Buffett went there as a failed country singer, and he, and he found the lost chord of the tropics. I mean, he, he sort of took Key West and turned it into his career. So there's a lot of good that came out of it, but also they felt this need to get away from it. So do you think they went there, all these literary greats and, and wonderful artists and musicians and so on, did they go there primarily just to play and, and be hedonistic, or did they realize that was sort of... Um, tools of the trade, and they were going there to do their art. I think it was a little bit of both. I think when I talked to all my main characters, McGuane and Harrison and Russell Chatham, the painter, it was always, oh, we went there to fish. And they did <laughs> go there to fish. But also there's a, a really splendid isolation about Key West, and it's such a, a wonderful community, even to this day, even though it's quite different than it was in the 70s. You're just sort of on your own, and you're you're away from the rest of the world. I mean, the, the island is two by four, just two miles by four miles. And, you know, you have to deal with people. I mean, if you live on an island, you have to be a lot more tolerant. So you get a wider range of people. You have this real laissez-faire attitude. Mm. You know, you can be a, a famous writer that, you know, might be accosted on the streets in, you know, Boston or New York or whatever, but you go to Key West and it's, ah, it's him. It's Hunter Thompson, yeah. big deal. These guys, like, they must be legendary in that little town. Tell me a, a Hunter S. Thompson story. Well, I don't know if I could tell you too many Hunter S. Thompson stories that would be heard in a family radio station, <laughs> but uh, that was the the place he disappeared to. In the 1970s, he was kind of the most famous writer in the world, and he was so famous he couldn't work anymore because, after all, he was supposed to be a journalist. And he got in this uh, horrible mess with cocaine. It was the one drug that he didn't really seem to be able to accommodate in his drug diet. And he was also in the middle of a divorce, and so he kind of went to Key West as a retreat, he, he was anonymous there in a way. I mean, people knew he was Hunter Thompson, but nobody bothered him. But he uh, he loved driving around the town in this big old, I think it was an Electra 225. Uh, it was a convertible. They, they call them conch cruisers down there, They're this gigantic boats of cars. Well, he got a bullhorn, and he would drive down the street, you know, well over the speed limit, you know, get out of my way, you you sleazy creeps, and, and yelling things through the bullhorn at people. And for a while, he was the babysitter for um, my friend Tom Corcoran, who's one of the main characters in the book. Tom and his wife were juggling different jobs, and they had a an eight-year-old son at home. And, you know, if one of them couldn't make it home, they'd call Hunter and say, would you go mind looking in on Sebastian until we get <laughs> off from Thompson work? Thompson as a babysitter? Whoa. Yeah, he's the babysitter. In fact, Sebastian's a grown man today, but he <laughs> refers to Thompson as Uncle Hunter. Anyway, Thompson would pull up in the yard. He would miss the driveway, and he'd have his bullhorn and say, Sebastian... I have arrived. Turn on the nightly news. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody in town knew who Hunter Thompson was because he was this crazy guy that drove around the bullhorn. They may have never read anything that he'd written, but they accepted right. him just because eccentricity is kind of the norm in Key West. Big personalities, eccentrics, artists, bohemians. I'm speaking with William McKean. His new book is Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Bill, you married into Key West, and you didn't marry somebody who went down there to escape. You you write how she has family roots that go way back. Right. In fact, her uh, grandfather had moved there in the 1930s as a teenager, working for his father as they rebuilt the remains of the overseas railroad and turned it into the overseas highway. And he built most of the major structures in Key West through his, his company. 
The other side of my wife's family is a Cuban family that's been there for a couple of generations, and her grandmother was a, used to play in a Cuban jazz band. So I felt that having that kind of background, having this kind of entree uh, really helped out a lot. In fact, when I wanted one of the locals to talk to me, and they might be a little suspicious, I'd drop a couple of names, and pretty soon hmm. we realized we had some people in common. For the old-time locals, like your wife's family, uh, all these other people can come in, chase their muse, have a good time, get some stories, take good notes, make some music, and then get it done and go home. For the old-time locals, they're there. Is, is Key West a paradise, or is it a trap? I think they would say it's a paradise because they've been there so long. I, I do think if you've lived in Key West a long time and the mortgage is paid off and you can afford to stay there, it's great. And I think you do have to keep keep your pleasure in line because it is possible to have too much fun, as some of the characters in the book will tell you. And I think if you, you manage to keep that in control, you're, you're doing okay. But it is a culture that has a lot... A lot of it based in alcohol. You know, the happy hour starts at 11 in the morning. Mm. There are people at Schooner Wharf when it opens at 9 a.m. who mm. are getting the first beer of the day. So ah. it's a culture really built around a lot of that. And I think it's uh, that's uh, one of the things about it that could be dangerous. But if you've been there forever, this has been your life. It's not like everyone there is, uh, is an alcoholic or has had a problem like that. But It sounds like there's, a, there's an appreciation just of of life, whether it's alcohol-fueled or not. I mean, you write beautifully about how people are proprietary about their sunset. Right. You know, the the sunset is, it's like a place where everyone goes. And they all watch the sun slip beneath the water, the little green flash at the end. And it's just a, a wonderful thing to look forward to every day. But as as I also said in the book, I I love waking up there because, you know, <laughs> you hear a rooster crow in the street you get up, you go down to the corner, you get your Cuban coffee, and you, you listen to all these guys talking politics about this island 90 miles away. It's just a, a great place to go. I, I love visiting there. I'm so glad that I have family there, and we get to go fairly often. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill McKean. Bill's book is Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Bill's got an interactive website where you can learn more about the characters that gave Key West its flavor. And that's simply williammckeen.com, William McKean, M-C-K-E-E-N. Bill, I'm sort of in the business of sending people to these exciting places and hoping they, they really have a, a worthwhile time and are, are satisfied. And so many places, like Key West, have a big reputation. You know, it was in the 70s, everybody was there. And they go there today and all they find is tourists looking for that magic. Are you likely to be disappointed when you go to Key West today? You know, I've thought about this a lot because uh, I lived in South Florida when I was a child and we'd go to the Keys almost every weekend. And then I moved to Florida as an adult and would go there frequently. And as much as you might say about the development and the upper Keys in particular and this change and that change and all that, the fact is the Keys are still the Keys and Key West is still Key West. And driving into Key West is one of the most remarkable, amazing, beautiful things you can do on this earth. Now, that's quite a statement. One of the most beautiful things you can do in this earth. Take us there. You're in your, uh, I guess you're not in a, a conch, or what do you call it, a conch car? Conch cruiser. A conch. No, I'm usually yeah. in uh, some kind of SUV because okay. I have so many kids. Whatever. You're coming down this elevated highway. Tell me what it's like. We're driving from Florida, and we're going to go down to Key West. I, I, it just sounds so great. You know, when when you hit the upper keys and you're driving through Key Largo, you think, what, what, these are the keys? What's up? You know, because there's Publix grocery stores and all this stuff along the road. But when you get down past, uh, I think it's Tavernier, you go over this big bridge at Jewfish Creek, and then all of a sudden it's just like there, there's not room for that much development. And it's just this beautiful ribbon highway that's kind of cutting across this water, and you can't describe the color. It's blue, it's green, it's this, it's that. It's just the most remarkable color in the world. And I remember driving down there about 10 years ago with my grown son and just... Every 30 seconds, we would just look at each other and go, my God, this is beautiful. And and so it's it's that way from uh, Isla Morada all the way down to Key West. And it's just, a, it's just a wonderful drive. It's just a wonderful feel. And I'm a sort of a road warrior. I've written other books about travel, about, you know, riding Highway 61 down the middle of the country and all this. But I think that's one of the most beautiful hmm. drives I've ever made. Now, this is really kind of uniquely tropical America, isn't it, or United States in the tropics? It is. It's, uh, there's no other place like this. 
I don't know that, you know, is there a, a literary community like this anymore? Is, is Aspen that? Is it Provincetown? Mm-hmm. Is it... Well, I was going to ask you that. You got Paris in the 20s, Key West in the 70s. Where is it today? You know, I, I don't really know. I'm, I think we're all so isolated sitting behind our yeah. computers that we're not out, uh, you know, you know discussing art and literature the way they did in Paris or the way they did in in Key West. Do you think in the 70s they knew it was a great time, like Paris in the 20s, or is that something you only know when you can have the benefit of history to look back on it? You know, that's a great question. I have a sense that they they knew it, but now they they love to reminisce about it. They love to remember those days, Mm -hmm. and I think the main characters that I were talking to for this book, I think they loved telling these stories and and the thought that it would be preserved in mm-hmm. in something beyond their writing. There must be a powerful nostalgia. I mean, there were people in their creative prime in their in their early adulthood down there in the 70s. Are some of them just kind of washed up and strolling the streets today and just thinking, man, it used to be so good. You know, I dealt mostly with this gang of as I said McGuane and Harrison and Chatham and they all live in Montana now. If you wanted to go down there as a visitor, is there a, a festival time that's particularly uh, thriving? <laughs> or do you want to avoid Well, that? every every fall they have the uh, the Fantasy Fest, but uh, that's sort of a, an X-rated festival as far as I know. Uh, every November they have a festival called Meeting of the Minds. Well, wait a minute. Let's is... go back to the X-rated Fantasy Fest. What do you okay. mean? Well, uh, you know... Uh, this is public radio. You can talk about anything. Well, the, a lot of people just uh, march in the parade and they're basically nude. And, you know, maybe they, they spray glitter on uh, on certain portions of their bodies, but they're basically nude. And the book publisher was, was thinking about how we should do an event then for, you know, for selling my book when it came out. And I said, well, you know, the problem is where does a naked person keep their money? You know, how can they buy a book? You know, where are they storing those credit cards? I don't want to know. The week following Fantasy Fest, usually it depends on the year, uh, there's an event called Meeting of the Minds. And that's a much more harmless um event. It's a, a gathering of all the Jimmy Buffett fans. It's sort of the uh, Parrothead convention. Wow. And of course, every July they have um, Hemingway Days, which of course Hemingway probably would have hated. But uh, you, you get a lot of people going around dressed like Ernest Hemingway in bush jackets and <laughs> white hair and beards. And I happen to be married in Key West during uh, Hemingway Days, so uh, I know what that's like. And that was a pretty festive atmosphere. But it seems like there's something going on there almost almost every week. And you know, there are some very expensive resorts, and if you ask me, they're worth the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're beautiful places to stay, but they're also these nice, quiet little bed and breakfasts. I don't think it's possible to have anything other than a superior meal in Key West. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great place to go visit. I'm talking with Bill McKean. He's the author of Mile Marker Zero, A Movable Feast of Key West. Take us just for our last couple of minutes back to the historic roots of this unique culture. I mean... Back 200 years ago, it was attracting pirates. Well, I really enjoyed learning about the, the history of Key West and that the reason it was named Bone Island originally and it was because there were bones all over the place. When the, the first uh, Spanish explorers found mounds of skeletons on the beach and there was no explanation for it. It could have been some residue of a Indian war or something like that. But it was a center for piracy. And then an American businessman decided that he wanted to set up a town there and then turn it into a naval base, which it was for many years until the beginning of the early 70s. And so it's had these many incarnations over the years. It was a naval base. Then it was a cigar rolling center. It was uh, also the sponging capital of the world. It was this, it was that. At a time when it was still isolated, it was not connected Mm. to Florida by either rail Mm. or highway. It was the largest city in the state of Florida. So it's had this uh, long tradition of uh, reinvention, but it was always rooted in piracy. And so one of the things we discuss in the book is how a lot of the uh, the people that were the sort of the business class of Key West in the 70s were trying to deal with the loss of income when the Navy closed the big naval base there. And so out of their shops, their T-shirt shops and knick-knack shops and sandal shops, they sold drugs. And uh, that was how the economy was sort of stabilized for a while there in the 70s. You know, but that's that's in keeping with the culture of this town because it was kind of a pirate town. And I think that that's also part of the laissez-faire attitude of the island. It was yeah. just like, okay, Bubba, if that's what you need to do to keep your business uh-huh. afloat, then sell some marijuana. Good for you. No problem. And a lot of the police officers would kind of look the other way if they weren't participating. So 
it's a, it's a strange uh, and wonderful place. The Conk Republic. Bill, you mentioned in your in your book that this whole Key West thing is kind of the the story of people trying to find home. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of these artists went there looking for something, and and I think I think in the case of Jimmy Buffett, he certainly found inspiration. And Buffett found more because when he went there, one of the first songs he wrote about Key West was called I Have Found Me a Home. And he, he turned Key West in song into this paradise of Margaritaville, which we've heard so many times in our life that we take it for granted. But it's just such a, a beautifully written song with all kinds of great lines and real sensory images and, and all of that. But the irony is that they went there looking for home and then it got to a point where Jimmy Buffett couldn't live there anymore. People would come knock on his door, and and they expected him to be standing at the city limits to greet tourists when they arrived. Tom McGuane also found that it, you know he went there; it was his home. He wrote some of his greatest books there, but you know eventually he had to leave. So it's, uh, you know, the the search for the home actually leads them somewhere else. And it's something I say about writing is that the story you start out to write isn't the story you always end up writing. And I think. That's what they learned. They went there looking for something, and it turns out that something (laughs) was somewhere else. Bill McKean, author of Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves comes to you from Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to WBUR in Boston for their help today. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.